International Mission Board is doing amazing work all over the world. And every year, during this time of year, we kind of focus on the International Mission Board. We talk about the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and it's a part of our day of extravagant giving. And over the last three years, um, we have given more to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in those three years than any three-year period in the history of this church. That is impacting the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have no issue whatsoever with telling you and exhorting you to give to the International Mission Board through the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. It is an amazing organization that is doing work all over the world. In fact, David Platt, who you saw there, is no longer the president of the International Mission Board. The new president was just appointed within the last couple of weeks, who is Paul Chitwood. He's a Kentucky guy, and I'll forgive him for that. He has actually been the executive director of Kentucky Baptist for the last several years, and the IMB is in great hands with Dr. Chitwood. He is going to be a fabulous leader for us, and I am excited about what is coming with the IMB. And this time of year, my, my radar is always kind of up towards missionaries. Because of the IMB, because of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, because of our day of extravagant giving, I'm thinking even more so about mission than normally during the year. And this week, my... Uh, that radar got kind of uh, something, I heard something in a distant radio story as we were driving around town that made me go and investigate a little bit more. I don't know if you've seen a picture of this guy, but we've got a, a picture that I want to show you. This guy is John Allen Chow, 26 years old. Felt called to a people group. He's originally from the Northwest, went to Oral Roberts University in America, but felt called to the East and felt called to a particular people group on an island off of India, the North Sentinel Island in the Andaman Sea, east of India, 700 miles off the coast. That community of people is known as one of the most impenetrable communities of people in the world. So Chow had gone to India, had begun to, to work with peoples, had been trying to build bridges, had been trying to figure out a way to get to the island because he felt his life was dedicated to them. He made inroads. It's illegal to go to the island, by the way, in India because they are preserving the island as it is. And Chow knew that if he didn't take the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, he didn't know who would. So he paid fishermen to illegally take him to the island. But they wouldn't make it all the way to the island because the last fisherman that got off track and got washed ashore was shot full of arrows by the natives and did not live. So the fisherman said, we will take you to a point, but we will not go to the island. So he brought along a small kayak, and when the fishermen got to the area, they dropped him off with his kayak, and he kayaked to the island. His first contact with them was not what he fully expected. He said as soon as he stepped foot on the island, two of the natives, two Sentinelese, came running at him yelling with two arrows each in their hand and a bow in the other. And as they got close to him, they put the bow, I mean the arrow, in the bow. He said, I put my hands up as an act of surrender and yelled, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you. He said, I said that three times. I had fish in my 
hands. And so I put my hands down and I offered them fish and kept saying, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you, in a language he thought they might could understand. He said, it became apparent they did not want the fish and they did not want me. So I ran as fast as I could, got back in the kayak and left. Then he paid fishermen to take him again. No one had ever had sustained contact with this group of people. He tried to think of appropriate gifts to take. He took scissors and safety pins and fishing line and soccer balls. He got to the point that fishermen would drop him off and he would take supplies. He would go to the island, stay there for the day trying to contact them. When he felt threatened or night came close, he would get in his kayak and go to another island a few miles away and spend the night on that island, get up the next morning and go back. He said that he tried to talk to them in the language that he had learned from native peoples while he was a soccer coach. His encounters with them got more intense. On one occasion when he tried to hand them fish, a boy, a young boy, shot an arrow into the Bible he was holding. On November 16th, he told the fishermen something that was different for them. The fishermen fish that area often. They just don't get near the island. And so he had them drop them off and said, Hey, listen, this time I'm not going back and forth to the island. I'm going to spend the night on the island. It's I feel good enough about what's happening. I'll be okay. He said, Just come back in a day or two and pick me up. On November 16th, when they went to pick him up, they saw him being dragged by a rope from the natives. He'd given his life for the cause of Christ. New York Times wrote a story about him on Friday. They found his journal. He had left it with some of the fishermen. In his journal, he wrote that he was called to these people. He talked about his fear, but he also talked about his confidence in Christ. He said, please do not be angry at them or God if I get killed. And then he wrote this. You guys might think I am crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. When I look at the video of the International Mission Board, David Platt talking about what's happening. Man, it's great. Missionaries in all kinds of places doing the work that the Lord has called them to do. But we fail to realize the sheer danger that they are in at all times. And the kind of commitment that it takes to do that. And I was thinking this week about that type of commitment, that type of trust, that kind of faith. And I thought of one verse in the book of Romans, chapter 12. I want you to look there with me. Romans, chapter 12. We're going to use this as a a verse. We're going to analyze this verse, look at this verse, and then I want to give you an extended illustration of someone who lived this out. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, I exhort you, I plead with you 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now my guess is you're familiar with this verse. Some of you could preach the sermon I'm about to preach because you could analyze this verse and break it down. Some of you have memorized this verse. This is one of the first verses that we talk to our kids about memorizing. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, for this is your true worship. Some some versions of that say this is your spiritual act of worship, or some, some of you go back further than that to the King James Version, this is your reasonable act of service. What I love about this one verse is it gives us the reason and the character of the commitment that we should show to the Lord. And it tells us right there at the very beginning, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, the reason that the commitment to follow the Lord needs to be in our lives because what God has already done for us. Bible study 101. When there's a therefore, you always ask, what's it therefore? Well, here's what Romans 12.1 is talking about. It's not talking about Romans 11, the end of that. It's talking about the entire first 11 chapters of Romans. And if you don't remember, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is one of the most ex- just unbelievable, beautiful pictures of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. <clears throat> Paul builds a case. A theology of the gospel, a theology of salvation. From chapter 1 through chapter 11, he gives us an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a masterpiece. Beautifully written. In Romans 1, he talks about the state of the world because we have rejected who God is in our lives. He tells us about the, that He has turned us over to our natural desires. In Romans 3, he tells us that it is our own personal issue because every one of us has been part of turning our backs on God for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, that verse doesn't say all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. It reminds us that every one of us sin and continually fall short of the glory of God. We continually fall short of what God has required of us. In chapter 6, as he progresses from the state of the world to the state of us as individuals, to chapter 6, he reminds us, and the wages of sin is death. Death. Now, he's not talking just physical death, although that is part of it. He is talking eternal separation from God. Hell. And so when you think about the book of Romans, he paints this scene of hopelessness without Christ. The world has lost its way because we have turned our backs on Jesus. You have lost your way because you continually turn your back on Jesus. And because you have rejected Christ, because you have sinned, because we are infiltrated with sin from the beginning of our race, from the beginning of the human race until now, we each choose to follow our own path and not the Lord. The wages that we deserve, the punishment we deserve, What is rightly given to us is death. But Romans 5 reminds us that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. 
6.23, that verse that says the wages of sin is death. You know the second part too, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ, our Son. And so the gospel is explained. It's not a hopeless situation because of Jesus. He died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. We can have eternal life through Him. And it tells us in chapter 10 of Romans that if we confess Him with our mouth, if we believe Him in our hearts, then we will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be Saved. So from Romans 1 to Romans 11, he lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and the glories that have been given to us. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in view of the mercies of God. Similar to what happens in the book of Ephesians when the first three chapters are all about what God has given us in Christ Jesus. How he has seated us in the heavenly. He has given us the power that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4 he says, therefore now walk worthy in the calling that you have been called. Here he says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God. Because of all that has been done, live with gratitude. Over the last few weeks, it seems almost every night at the supper table, Ava's wanted us to go around the table and tell what we're thankful for. All the way up to Thanksgiving. Even Thanksgiving, we spent, so we do Thanksgiving in Jackson on Thursday and Dyersburg on Friday. We do the same meal twice because why not, right? We have a couple of different side dishes. One's got a, a grape salad, another's got a broccoli casserole, but it's the same basic deal, right? We're sitting at the table on Friday, and she says, we're going around the table. Ava says, let's go around the table tell what we're thankful for. And Eli goes, we've done that. As big brothers will do. We just spent a week talking about it. We just spent a holiday talking about how grateful we are. Yet, do we really live our lives as gratitude to the Lord? See, in Scripture, it's not so much how we speak our gratitude, it's how we live our gratitude. It's how we live based on what Christ has done for us. I think of the story in Luke 17 where he heals ten lepers. You remember the story, right? And how many returned to tell him thanks? One. The point of the story there is that we ought to live lives that are grateful. And I wonder what the count would be on our lives in this room if we truly examined who we are, what our lives look like based on gratitude to the Lord. Would that number be one in ten, one in a hundred, one in five? What would it look like if we got a true assessment of how we live? We are to be grateful people. And the way scripture says that we are to be grateful for the salvation that has been given to us. Not to earn anything, not because it buys us anything, but because it is a heart of gratitude. We live committed lives. John Chow believed it was worth it to take the gospel to people who had never heard because Christ had come for him. And because of what God has done, He urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The idea behind this passage is that because of what God has done for us, what we ought to do for Him is total 
commitment. All of the language here in the original language is technical language of what the sacrificial system would have used. The word offer here, they would have known. They would have been a part of. They understood this verse in Romans much better than you and I understand this verse because they had stood at the altar when they had presented animals for sacrifice. They had brought their own to the place, had watched the animals slaughtered and then burned on the sacrificial altar. And so when he says offer it, it's the word that was used for worship, for presenting before your God. And he says that those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, because of what he's done for us, we ought to offer. And then it tells us what we're to offer, our bodies. The idea there is the completeness of who we are. Everything about what we do, everything about what we think. In fact, chapter 12, verse 2, will talk about renewing our mind and living with a mind dedicated to the Lord. It's our body, it's our soul, it's our mind. It is the completion of who we are is given over to the Lord. And then he uses three adjectives, living, holy, and pleasing. Living, not dead, that was the oxymoron, a living sacrifice. But he says, put your life on the line, live full of energy, full of life, positive, dynamic. Everything you've got, placed before the Lord, living every aspect of your being for His glory, for His kingdom, to give thanks to Him for what He's done. Holy, set aside, consecrated for the purpose of God. Pleasing to Him with the right attitude and the right motive. Appropriately dedicated to Him. The phrase almost elicits a description that goes back to the very first family of the Bible. Romans often looks back to the first family. In fact, Romans talks about Adam, first Adam. Here it reckons back to a scene at the very beginning of the Bible when Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice before the Lord. And it tells us in Scripture only that Abel's sacrifice was found pleasing, worthy, and Cain's was not. Now you know the story, right? Cain ended up being completely jealous by that, and it made a bad situation worse. You ever been known to do that? Make a decision that makes a bad situation worse. Add insult to injury, right? Cain kills his brother. But at the root of it is this understanding of what does it mean that Abel's was pleasing to God and Cain's was not. And there are all kinds of theories out there. There have been lots of ink written about all that's there. What I know for sure is whatever it means, it means that the attitude in which they brought it to God, the first fruits in which they brought it to God, the standard in which they brought it to God, Abel's was pure and right and good. And then it says, this is your true or appropriate, or reasonable act of worship. What he basically is saying here is, that when you follow Jesus Christ, and you understand what he's done for you, halfway, 75% commitment, doesn't even make sense. There's no way you can say, boy, I am so thankful for what the Lord has done, I'm going to give him 15% of my life. And we sing about it sometimes, good old hymn, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. 
And yet most of us live our lives with that being a lie. Because we don't truly give our lives to Christ. We give some of it, a portion of it, part of it, a little bit, as much as we feel like we can get by with. There's too much other stuff going on, too many other important things in the world, too many other matters that get our attention. One pastor says, to be a Christian means to give as much as I can to as much of Jesus as I know. This is your reasonable act of worship. The reason to commit is because Christ has given his life for us. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from eternal torment and given us a hope and a future with him in a perfected place built especially for us in relationship to him. The character of that commitment is complete, holy, devoted to him. A sacrifice of our entire lives. And you never fully know what a life completely dedicated to the Lord will accomplish. I was thinking this week particularly about one missionary. I started the week thinking about this missionary. And then the story came in the middle of the week about John Chow. And I began to think about him. But there's one missionary that kind of hovers over this time of year more than any other. And it's this lady. Y'all know who that is? That's Lottie. Old Lottie. Miss Lottie. Right? Lottie Moon was born Charlotte Diggs Moon. The Charlotte Moon offering doesn't sound as good as Lottie Moon, does it? She got Lottie as a nickname pretty early in life. She was born on December 12, 1840 in Virginia. She entered the world as part of a southern aristocratic family. It was before the Civil War. In fact, when the Civil War happened, it would devastate her family. Her family, after the Civil War, was worth one-fortieth what they were before the Civil War. Lottie served our Lord for 39 years on the mission field. Mostly in China. Now, best estimates say that Lottie Moon grew to a full four feet, three inches tall. No one ever speaks of her beauty, although there was something attractive about her in that she had a powerful personality that naturally drew people to herself. She taught in school for girls, made evangelist trips to China's interior to share the gospel with women and girls. What's interesting is, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. 1918 is when the Lottie Moon Christmas offering was established. And I don't think there's any way Lottie Moon, who gave her life to following Jesus Christ, would understand the impact that the offering named after her would have. Just for instance, $159 million was raised in her name last year. That's awesome, right? There have been around $4 billion raised in honor of her through the offering over the lifetime of the offering. Over half of the budget for the International Mission Board comes through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Let me just show you some examples of what that means for the world in the last year. So I've got three slides. First of all, there were 14,817 pastors trained in the last year through funding of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Another stat for you. There were 12,000 churches planted in the last year. And here's the last one I want you to see. 46,000 people 
495 were baptized in the last year internationally through the work of the International Mission Board. Think, well, there's no way Lottie Moon could have ever envisioned that, right? But she lived her life as God had called her to live her life here and now. It's the power of a life sold out to the Lordship of Christ. A life of the, given to the Lord. God chose to use her again and again and again. She lived a perfect life, but she lived a life dedicated to Jesus. She completely trusted the Lord. Lived in gratitude. As a child, her mother read to Lottie, her siblings, the Bible and other books. And one of the first books that she read or she remembered was a book about Adoniram Judson. And his wife, Anne, who was the first Baptist woman missionary from America. Lottie didn't believe in Jesus early on, even though she was a family that did and had strong ties to the church. Her mom talked to her again and again and again. But when she was 18 years old, some friends of hers said, let's go to this rally where there's going to be a guy there preaching. And she said, I don't want to go. And they said, you're going to go with us. I don't want to go. These friends have been praying for her salvation for months. And they took her, and the guy preaching there was a famous pastor of that day, John Brodus. John Brodus preached, and Lottie Moon gave her life to Jesus Christ that night. She believed that God had his hand on her life. Lottie's life was often a life lived of loneliness. She was often the only Southern Baptist missionary in northern China. She never married. Somebody proposed to her, and she turned him down. She stayed with the work God had for. In December 1885, she relocated to Pingtu. And aided by a Chinese couple from Ting Chow, she rented a four-room dirt floor house for $24 a year. Basically the same as today, right? She ate and lived as the Chinese did. In fact, many people in the community did not know that she spoke English. They thought she only spoke Chinese. She quickly adapted to the local dialect. She began visiting surrounding villages and within a few months had made 122 trips to 33 different places. She gratefully trusted the Lord in trying and difficult circumstances. In fact, there was a report written in America that the hardships for missionaries around the world was ending. She wrote a letter to that editor. Said, I wish it were true. She challenged people back home to give to the work of the mission. She opposed raising funds by entertainment or gimmicks. She wrote, I wonder how many of us really believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive. A person who accepts the statement of our Lord Jesus Christ as fact and not as some idealism will make giving a principle of her life. She will lay aside sacredly not less than one-tenth of her income of her earnings as the Lord's money and she would no more dare touch that for personal use than she would steal. How many among us are that imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need to pay nothing? Forgetting that the prime objective of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of him. Persecution broke out in the area in which she was in in 1890. They were taking believers in that area, tying them to poles and beating them. One of the young converts that Lottie had helped lead to Christ was beaten by his brothers. His name was Li Xiaotang. They tore out his hair, yet he remained steadfast in his faith. And he went on to become the great evangelist of northern China, personally baptizing over 10,000 believers. 
Lottie, while this persecution was happening, rushed to the community and told them, if you attempt to destroy this church, you will have to kill me first. Jesus gave himself for Christians. I am ready to die for him. The mob got ready to kill her. But someone restrained them. And in the midst of it, it said that her calm terrified unbelievers. She remained with those that were persecuted until it waned. And when the believers did not retaliate with the usual legal action, the Chinese grew in the respect of Christians and asked to hear of the new faith. And the strongest church beginnings in China, it was in northern China where Lottie Moon was the missionary. Another example of her confidence in God. China had a revolution, broke out in the Fighting was intense around Baptist mission stations in northern China. The U.S. consul asked missionaries to move to a safer port city, and they all agreed to go. Everyone said, we'll go, except for one. Anybody want to guess who stayed? Lottie Moon. When she learned that Chinese personnel had left, and that the people in the hospital were left alone, she made her way through warring troops, took charge of the hospital, and encouraged the terrified nurses and others by her courage. They resumed work caring for the ill and wounded. And when the men and other missionaries came back, they were amazed to find that Lottie had been directing the hospital for ten days, and it was more efficient than it had been when they left. When the men returned, she said, my work here is done. I'm ready to go home. They said, you can't go home, Lottie, because you're going to walk right through heavy fighting. She said, I'm supposed to go home. The Lord's told me to go home. I'm going home. And so they said, you can't go home. She insisted. So they sent word to the generals, Miss Lottie is coming. A young missionary escorted her as they made way through the battle lines. Firing stopped on both sides while Miss Lottie walked through the middle. She was a remarkable woman. She graduated from the female counterpart of the University of Virginia. During that time, she mastered Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish. And then went and ministered in China. John Brodus, the pastor who had been a part of her salvation and called to ministry, said that she was the most educated woman in the South when she graduated. In February of 1873, she felt a clear call to missions. She was listening to a sermon in First Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia, where she had started a girls' school. The minister had talked about going to the mission field, and she went to her room following it, prayed all afternoon, and said, I've got to go. Her sister was already on the field, and on July 7th, 1873, the Foreign Mission Board appointed Charlotte Diggs moon Lottie to the mission field in village after village she would travel from early morning to late evening streets in the yard of dirty homes traveling and riding on donkeys donkeys in the heat and dust of the summer and in the wintry rain and snow she was constantly in contact with people continually at risk of exposure to smallpox and other diseases yet she suppressed her craving for a culture life and conversation she says as i wander from village to village i feel it is no idle fancy that the master walks beside me and i hear his voice saying i am with you always even until the end Lottie suggested to Dr. Tupper, the head of the mission board, that they begin to adopt a pattern that others had done to let people come home after 10 years on a furlough 
Because women and men were dying on the mission field from exhaustion and were leaving because of discouragement. Lottie couldn't understand why more people weren't going to missions. She wrote letters continually to the International Mission Board, the Foreign Mission Board's director, Dr. Tupper. What we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers oh so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? I think your eye is correct that a young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the nations, but if he can stay home at all because the command is so plain, go. She wrote especially about the lack of men on the field. And she said, oh, we had that we had active and zealous men who would go far and wide scattering books and tracts and preaching the word to the vast multitudes of this land. About Southern Baptists at that time, she said, how inadequate our force here in the province are 30 million souls and Southern Baptists can send one man and three women to tell them the story of redeeming love. That my words could be a trumpet call stirring the hearts of my brothers and sisters to pray, to labor, to give themselves to this people. She said in the vast continent of Africa we have two missionaries. In Japan we have not one. In China, we have eight missionaries to 400 million people. That's one missionary for 50 million people. And yet we call ourselves people who believe in mission. Our Lord says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. Are we obeying that command? Lottie didn't mince words when she wrote letters. She asked one time, why is the love of gold more potent than the love of souls? There are more men mining and prospecting for gold in our province of China, more than double the number of men representing Southern Baptist. She was fully committed to her mission. She adopted traditional Chinese dress, learned their custom. Not only did she serve them, she identified them even in her death. May 4th of 1887, I feel that I would gladly give my life to working among such a people and regard it as a joy and privilege. Yet I, to the women who think of coming, I would say, count the cost. You must give up all that you hold dear and live a life that is outside of your work, narrow and contracted to the last degree. If you really love the work, it will atone for all you give up. And when your work is ended and you go home to see the master smile and hear his voice of welcome will more than repay your toils amid the nations. She said, I would that I had a thousand lives that I might give them all to the women of China. In the year of her death, 2,358 persons were baptized in her field of service, doubling the amount of Baptist in that area. There was a famine that hit around the time of her death. She refused to eat. Refused to eat. Everything she made everything she had, she gave to feed the people surrounding her, the Chinese women. It got to the point that she was 50 pounds and in desperate health needs. They forced her to leave. She could not fight them away. She told them she didn't want to, but they picked her up and took her. They put her on a boat to go back to America. And while she was in a private cabin on a boat back to America, back to her family, to be nursed back to health. She laid in the bed with her fellow missionary, Cynthia Miller, who was traveling with her and said to her, 
Jesus is here right now. You can pray now that he will fill my heart and stay with me, for when Jesus comes in, he drives out all evil. And then she began to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. And then she began to repeat again and again, they are weak, but he is strong. After a little bit, she said, Miss Miller, do you know this song? Miss Miller said, yes, I do. And in the moments after that, Lottie Moon closed her eyes and departed this world for the next. She died at the age of 72, 50 pounds, refusing to eat her food so that it might go to the others. Personal effects consisted of one trunk. The executive of her estate sold off all of her personal property, cleared her bank account of $250 in an inflated local currency. He wrote, The heiress of Viewmount did not have enough estate to pay her way back to Virginia. She had literally given everything she had for Jesus. Twenty years following her death, Chinese women had not figured out why she hadn't returned back to them. And they would write in villages. People would come in villages. They would write on papers and ask them. Or they would ask them verbally, When will the heavenly book visitor come to us again? One year following her death, Agnes Osborne suggested that the annual foreign missions offering be taken as a living memorial to Lottie Moon. And in 1918... A lady stood up and said, Miss Moon is the one who suggested the Christmas offering for four missions. She showed us the way in so many things. Wouldn't it be appropriate to name the offering in her memory? That woman, by the way, was Annie Armstrong. Another Baptist name you may know. Following her death, fellow missionaries came in possession of her Bible. And on the flyleaf words are found which she had penned that remain to this day a perpetual encouragement to those who would go to the nations for Jesus. Oh, she said, that I could consecrate myself, my soul, and my body to his service forever. Oh, that I could give myself up to him so as never more to attempt to be my own or to have any will or affection improper for those conformed. To him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. She was a remarkable lady. But here's the thing. She was a lady who simply gave her life to following Jesus Christ. And the world has been forever changed by it. So uh, my family, when we travel, we do uh, playlists, song playlists for the whole family. We just play it through um, Spotify, an app on our phone. And the girls were begging for a Thanksgiving playlist because we always have... Every other playlist. Christmas playlist is already made. Where's our Thanksgiving playlist? So I made a Thanksgiving playlist. And uh, I put on there, I was just looking through songs. So, you know, I never made a Thanksgiving playlist. I looked for different things. And I looked for thank you songs. And an old Christian song came up, some of you may remember, called simply Thank You by Ray Bolts. 
don't know if you remember the premise. Some of you may have never heard the song, but the premise of the song is dream that he went to heaven and was there standing there with his friend in heaven. A line starts to form with people that just simply say thank you for giving to the Lord. That their lives have been changed because of their gift to the Lord. Now, listening to the song now, when I was part of a youth group that we used to perform songs. Do you remember when youth groups used to do that? All right. I'd, I'd perform songs. I'm not going to perform for you right now. When I perform, I don't mean sing. I mean, you know, interpretive movement. There wouldn't mean dancing because we were Baptists, but we were moving interpretively. All right. Thank you was one of those songs that we did again and again and again. It's a powerful message. And I was listening to it thinking, how and how long is Lottie Moon's line going to be? Now, I don't know that that's actually going to happen, but I do believe we have eternity to spend talking about the things that God has done in and through our lives. And I can guarantee you, for those of us that dedicate our lives to the Lord, when we get to heaven, we are going to be shocked with what the Lord did with our meager lives. Not because we're any good, but because he is unbelievably great. And I can't help but think of a girl who grew up an aristocrat in Virginia who heard one sermon on a Sunday after her sister had told her, you need to think about it. And she said, I'm not coming. She went and heard a sermon. She went and changed the world. And I wonder what it would look like if we lived our lives as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. Let's pray together.